All right. Don't forget the Grinch. You know, Christmas is uh, the time of year where, uh, of course, every movie, every song, everything kind of gets people to think about others. It's, it's that se- time of the season where every organization is focused on giving and, and being less selfish. And so it's kind of one of the most obvious parts of the Christmas story that we think about or the most prevalent that we think about and see. But one of the things about it is, I don't know about you, but one thing I've noticed is for most people, it's actually easy to start thinking about people for a few weeks, maybe for a month of the year. And it's easier to think about maybe the family, the nice family who's down on their luck. Or the kind neighbor who's widowed and that you just say, you know, I'm going to really be focused in and and, and be aware of others for a while. And it's easy to focus on those who, let's be honest, are more deserving of your kindness. But what about the Grinches out there? And maybe Grinch is too strong because, you know, there are some people that are just really hard to love, really hard to serve, really hard to think about. But what about just the people that you don't relate to very well. Maybe they uh, speak a different language, maybe from a different culture, maybe they vote differently, they think differently about uh, mask policies and things like that. What about those types of people? You know, as we look at the Christmas story, and we're going through it as we do every year, and and this year the theme is simple Christmas, to say, what if we just reduce down all the noise and say, what is fundamentally what we're called to be transformed into? What does this story remind us about, about our identity, about who our God is? The question for us today is, how can we become people who allow this story not just to impact us for a few weeks and not just for those who are deserving? But what if it really was this transformative message that shaped us? Shaped us into people who are able to think of others and to react, respond to others the way Jesus did for us when he came down. So that's what we'll be looking at here today. I want to invite you to uh, pray with me as we get started with this morning. And we'll be walking through a few passages of the Christmas story. So join with me. God, we thank you for today and We thank you for the amazing reminder and the challenge every year to consider the significance that you came down and what that means for us, but not just what it means about your love for us, but what it means for this new identity you've given us. And so God, would you transform and shape our hearts? Would you soften our hearts, Lord? Would you give us open hands that we could be transformed and open to to you and to others around us? And I ask now that you would Speak to us in this place. In your name, amen. So as we look at this uh, Christmas story and we think about how do we get trans, what what is that process of being transformed? There's a few things I want to kind of look at. The first thing is this, is when we think about how can we see others and have a better view of them, I want to propose something to you, this. It's the determining factor in how we treat others is in how we see ourselves as much as how we see them. See, sometimes we think of this Christmas story as, oh, we have to learn to see others as more lovable. We have to learn to see others as more deserving of our love. But I want to propose to you today that the determining factor in how we treat other people is in, as much in how we see ourselves. 
that there's something about how we view ourselves that actually gives us the freedom, the posture to be able to see others in different light. But it begins with how we look at ourselves. And, and we'll look at that a little bit here today of what I mean by that. But I really believe that it's all rooted in this idea of, of more we understand who we are and the confidence in who we are and our identity. It actually gives us the freedom then to freely love, to freely serve. And really, there's something here in the Christmas story that is one word that is the glue for all of it, and it's this word called humility. And the bridge between our self-worth, or how we view ourselves, and our service is humility. The bridge between our self-worth and our service is humility. See, because you can serve people out of a false humility, it, without a self-worth, and it really becomes, I'm just serving you because I'm, I'm, it's more like humiliation. I'm subservient. I, of course I serve you. Of course I care for you because I'm so lowly. Or it can be out of a place of, I'm going to serve you because I need to get something back. I need that affirmation. I need that thanks. I need you to build me up. And so the service itself becomes a transaction. But really, the bridge between our self-worth, really understanding who we are and true service is this word humility. And so we want to look at that because in the Christmas story, we all know, if, well, if you don't know, I'll tell you. <laughs> the Christmas story is God's love as a selfless gift. And his gift is not just the gift for good people. It's a gift for those of us who don't deserve the gift. It was God's service, his humility for us, his willingness to come and to be made a man. Could you imagine that? Can you imagine being God in heaven and saying, okay, I'm going down and I'm going to embody the human existence and I'm going to exist as a human. And what would the angels, what was that conversation like? Are you sure you're going to do that? Like we've been watching these humans for thousands of years. What do you mean you're going to become one of them? You're just going to walk around in their skin? Okay, I get that. But are you going to wake up like sore in the morning? Are you going to ever have those nights where your pillow was wrong and you just like, why can't I turn my head today? You're going to have that kind of, are you really going to be that? Are you, are you going to have like this whole existence? Are you going to have those days where you get a cold or a flu and you just, you don't feel well? Really? You want to go through that? You want to go through junior high, Jesus? Really? Why don't you just start at like 18 or something? But he decided to enter in. It was this humility, this true humility that's just part of the Christmas story. So notice how humility is all over the Christmas story. We're going to walk through it pretty quickly here today. Some of the most familiar passages. Let's start with Mary. In Luke chapter 1 verse 30, I have it on the screen for you. This is when Mary was told that she's going to give birth. And it says this, the angel says to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you'll give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he'll be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So we've heard this story before, perhaps she's been given this message. And, and Mary looks at the angel, and Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, so the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Now here's the next thing is her response. In verse 38, Mary said, behold, the Lord's bondservant. May it be done to me according to your word. 
the angel departed her. Now, this might be so familiar with us that we just read it. Some of you in here, this is the most skeptical uh, part of the Christian faith. This, this whole story of Jesus' birth is the one where you're like, eh, I'm not sure I buy into all of that. I'm not sure I buy into this whole story. I mean, even this, how could, how could a young girl who's a virgin who's been told she's going to have a baby just say, like, sure, I'll take that. It's a hard part of the story to believe, and, and I actually have, we've taught on this in years past. I don't have time to get into it. I do believe that, one, you have to start with a belief in the supernatural, so let's just believe that. Um, but in context of the Hebrew tradition and birth and, and God speaking to them and prophecies, I do believe that her heart was postured to at least see this as plausible, that God could work this way. So I'm not going to have a whole sermon on that. We've done that in the past, and if you want to talk deeper about kind of the reason we can believe this, uh, I'd love to provide for you some resources. But I want you to notice in this story, Mary responds, Behold, I'm your servant. Let it be done to me. Now we can think of this a couple ways. One, we can think of it as a poor, helpless child, probably at age somewhere in her early teens, 14, 15, maybe 13, who's told she's going to have a child. She knows she's a virgin. She's engaged to be married. We could think of it as, well, she was just this peasant woman who had to accept what was given to her. And so it's not really an act of humility. It's her way of just saying, well, I'm your servant. I'm so lowly. I'm so insignificant. Sure. That's one way. But there's another way. We could actually see that her humility, her willingness to accept this, was rooted in her confidence in who she really was. It wasn't a place of lowliness in, in a sense of like humiliation, but lowliness in a sense of understanding who she was. Her confidence in her identity and her rootedness in God and His story. Because notice, they said, You are going to have a child, your son is going to be God the Most High. That's amazing, right? Now, she knew that she was a virgin. She knew that if it were to be, if she was pregnant, she was confident that this had to be God's doing. It had to be. There's no other way. So she had this confidence in, okay, God is up to something. So she accepts it. She says, I'm your servant. I'll, I'll enter into this. And we see that Mary's humility in the Christmas story was a catalyst for God's plan. So we see the first part of humility so far as Mary's humility is the catalyst for God's plan in the Christmas story. Now, let's look at the next person, Joseph. In Matthew chapter 1, it says uh, the birth of the Messiah Jesus came this way, that Mary uh, was already told that she's going to have a child. She goes to her, to her fiance, who she's engaged to be married to, and says, Joseph, I got to tell you, I just had this vision from the Lord, and I'm pregnant with the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to have the Son of God. Now, if you are the guy... Let me just tell you, even if you have a great faith in God, this is one of those moments where you're just like, wow, I've heard a lot of stories in my life. <laughs> you can, you know, I've, I've heard the, hey, it's not me, it's not you, it's me, but this one's a new one. This one's a new one. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm going to have the Son of God? I, God, really? And we find out that Mo Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19 he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace Mary, so he planned to send her away quietly. Because he loved her, he said, hey, you know what? 
The punishment for you could be death or stoning. It didn't happen often in the first century, but it could be. Certainly it would be public humiliation. No one is going to believe the story, so I'm just going to send you away. Go hang out with your relatives. Have your baby. You know, start your new life. Let's just move on. But in that night, the angel of the Lord visits Joseph in a dream. Verse 20 of uh, uh, Matthew 1. Said Joseph, son of the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who's been conceived in her, her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, you shall name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now this took place so that what was spoken to the Lord through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they'll name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now look at this. And Joseph awoke in verse 24. He awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. And he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to his son and he named him Jesus. In this story, could it be again, Joseph, what was he staring down? He could go to his family and say, no, seriously, the angel of the Lord visited me in a dream. The angel of the Lord visited Mary. We want you, trust me, this is God's son. Can you imagine Joseph hanging out watching the football game with his buddies? His buddies are like, hey, Mary's looking a little, you know, pregnant. You know, you're not quite married yet. And he goes, no, sir, it was God. It was, it was God. No, it's, we haven't touched yet. Could you imagine these, these conversations he's looking at for the next nine months of his life? And who knows how many years afterwards. No, no one's going to believe him. But something allowed Joseph to accept this story. Now, yes, an appearance from the Lord, an angel of the Lord, was important. And that is God's grace and mercy to Joseph. Okay, he needed that. And trust me, he needed that. But there was something here that Joseph then was able to accept the story. Because again, not out of subservientness, but he actually had confidence to face what was coming his way. He said, I have confidence in who God is. I have confidence that he is going to carry us through. So Joseph's humility now becomes the catalyst for Mary's success. Joseph's being willing to humble himself and take on this story was the catalyst for Mary's success in the story. He walked with her. He didn't leave her alone. He didn't abandon her. And could God have walked her through this? Of course. But Joseph is part of the story. Let's look at the next part of the story. This is probably the most familiar part of the Christmas story. It's now the, this manger scene. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and he's born in a stable, and he's laid in a manger. Uh, and and, and he, we find this here in Luke chapter 2. Again, I have it on the screen for you. It says, verse 6, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the guest house. So this part of the story, again, we've heard it before. Perhaps you've heard this. We've seen the, the manger scenes. Even if you're new to the faith, it's probably something you have seen as we, we look at manger scenes all the time. And, and when you see this, Jesus being born in a humble place. No place for a king, no place for a Messiah to be born. No place for someone who's going to represent the nation of Israel and the priesthood and all. You would think like, no, he at least has to be born in a royal family. At least be presented in the temple. At least in a nice home. At least a sterilized location, right? But why? 
Why here? Why does the story have to go this way? Again, was it because Jesus was insignificant? Or is there something else going on? And we see that in this story, Jesus' humble beginning was the catalyst for acceptance of the shepherds. The shepherds were the first people who came and worshipped Jesus. Now, shepherds in the story were generally considered unclean. They were generally outcast in most areas, or, or at least unclean, because they were spending their time with the animals. They would sleep by the animals, spend their days with the animals. They were not welcomed into certain places. And if you were to have a child, and a child was born, you certainly, as a shepherd, would not be welcomed, unless it was your own child, to come and see that child. You were unclean. You'd have to go through a ritual and purify yourself and all of this, and you would not be able to see the child. But the one place you could go would be into a stable, where the animals are already at. So it's interesting that even the birth of Jesus was the, the humble beginning actually was the catalyst that allowed the shepherds to be accepted and be the very first to worship. Now why does that matter? Think of if the story was different. What if the first people to worship Jesus were the kings? They were the priests in the temple. They were the religious elite. They were the people with wealth and, and money, and they were already the insiders. What would that say? See, by Jesus starting his story with the most lowly of society, it was from the very beginning saying, this is something different about this Messiah. There will be something different about who is invited to the table, who's invited in to worship. And actually, the humility of Jesus and his birth this way actually now was the catalyst, not just for the shepherd's acceptance, but for your acceptance and mine. Because if I'm in this story in first century, guess where I'm not welcomed into? I'm probably not the guy they're like, come on into the temple, you clean man. <laughs> I relate more with the shepherds than I do with the elite. And they're welcomed in. Now, if we think of just this birth story, Jesus' birth, think of all the great stories throughout history. Those times of where someone has made a decision, or times when people have stepped out in faith, or times when people have given of themselves and had extraordinary results. One of my most uh, favorite stories is a story of a, a person named Corey Ten Boom. She existed during uh, World War II. In fact, her family lived in the Netherlands and, and was known, she was born in the late 1800s, and her family was known to actually be loving and caring for uh, those, the lowliest of society. They took care of many people who had mental disabilities uh, before the war. That their family was known to be a kind family that would take care of and, and, and always meet the needs of people who needed their needs met. So when World War II happened, and the Germans eventually occupied uh, the Netherlands, and the Gestapo was looking for the Jewish people, and one Jewish family went to the Ten Boom family and said, can you help us? We need shelter, we need food, we need something. And it began their process of being a part of the resistance movement there in the Netherlands. And through their lives, Corrie Ten Boom uh, was able to get over 100 uh, food ration cards, uh, just kind of supernaturally as God allowed that to happen. And they housed and saved dozens and dozens and dozens of Jewish people during the war. An act of humility, of saying, I want, we're here to serve, to think of others. Now, they all ended up, eventually got caught. 
Her father died. Her sister died in a concentration camp uh, after being there for a few days. And right before her sister died, her sister Betsy, they were in the concentration camp, and they were saying, this is the deepest, darkest pit you could possibly be in. And her sister said this. This shows you just kind of their posture towards God. She looked at Corey, and she said, this is awful. There is no pit so deep in this world that God is not deeper still. That you can put me in the deepest pit in the world, but there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. So they had this great confidence. Their humility was rooted in a confidence of who God was and what he has done for them. And so you have this amazing story, and Corey actually survived. She went to a labor camp. She survived. She wrote the book, The Hiding Place, in the 70s, and, and has touched the lives of thousands, if not millions. When we hear stories like that, we see the power of humility, what it does, how it allows us to actually serve. We see how it serves as this bridge between your self-worth and your service. So the question for us today really is, we, we can see the power of humility in stories all over the place, but here's a question for us is, what does this mean for us today? Because I don't know about you, but I, my whole life I've been afraid, I don't really want to pray for humility. That, that's one of those things, right? We often, I, I make the joke, like never pray for humility or patience, or God might help you get it. And sometimes humility feels like a scary thing because often it feels like humiliation is what we're talking about. But it's really not. So what does this mean for us today? Last week when we started this series, we looked at why did Christmas happen in the first place? What happened when Jesus came? And one of the things we looked at was this idea that he became our new representative, a new Adam. He was demonstrating what it meant to be a new creation. What, it, what the example that he set was now a new life in Christ. You're no longer living in your old self, in the old, the Adam, the one who's in sin, but you now are given a new life. So we look at Christ and say he's our new representative. He gives us an example of what life looks like. And Paul addresses this very issue in Philippians chapter 2. And I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2 because we're going to anchor there for the rest of our time. In Philippians chapter 2 Paul actually double clicks on this idea of humility and actually is addressing which was one of the earliest, as far as I can find, Christmas songs ever written that is in Philippians chapter 2. So we'll, let's look at this. Paul is encouraging the Christians in, Philippian, in Philippi and he says this in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility Consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. So when we're talking about humility, Paul says, okay, this is, what, this is what I want you to do. Don't just do anything out of selfishness. I think we all understand selfishness. Or empty conceit. I actually like the, new, the King James version of this. I don't always like King James version of the words, but it's vainglory. And, and it's this idea of of you kind of have this, this glory, you're doing something to bring glory to yourself, but it's really emptiness, and it's, it's in vain, and it almost shows as false humility as well. Like, don't do anything out of selfishness, only for yourself, or even like, it's selfish, but it's trying to look like it's not selfish. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the people who serve you, and they're like, so what are you going to do for me um, and now that I served you? And he's like, no, no, put that attitude away from you. And notice how he defines humility. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but for the interests of others. 
I've been really thinking about that this week and saying, what does that look like? I mean, okay, on the surface, we can figure that out, but what's the deep, what's a better way to understand that? Don't just look out for your own interests, but the interests of others. We've all been taught that since we were as little, well, most of us were probably taught that since we were just as long as we can remember, right? The world's not about you. I remember my parents would often say, you know, like, Ryan, the world's not spinning around you. It's not just about you. And so we've been taught that, many of us, for most of our lives. But what does it really mean to not just look out for your own interests? Because know what Paul says. He doesn't say don't ever think about your own interests. Sometimes we think of humility means that you have to put yourself so low that you don't exist. But he says, not just your interests, but the interests of others. And the way I kind of thought about this is humility, in this part, is the ability to see your life as part of a bigger story. Humility is the ability to see your life as a part of a bigger story. You see that you are just, you are a part of what God is unfolding, and you are only one of many characters in the story. The story isn't about you. It's about God and what he is, the story he's writing, and you are in it. And humility begins when you can see your life as part of a bigger story. Notice Corey Tin Boom. Her life was part of a bigger story. She was asking the question, God, why am I here right now in this moment? Why have you given our family prosperity and a place to live, and why have you placed us here? What is the bigger story? For you, it might be, why is this coworker in my life? Why, when I go to volunteer in the classroom, do I have these great conversations with this teacher? God, why are these kids here in this classroom where I'm volunteering? Why are they here now? What is my part in the bigger story? It's not just about you and your kid. It's something bigger. And humility begins when we start to see ourselves as part of a bigger story that God is unfolding. You could see that in Mary. You could see it in Joseph. Obviously, we see it in Jesus. The bigger story. I think even on a small level, uh, I had a friend in uh, junior high and high school uh, named Bobby Brown, not the singer, but uh, a good friend of mine. And he was one of those. Do you ever, anyone ever have one of those friends that everything they did, they did better than you? You, you have those friends? How many of you were that person? Uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> we're trying humility this morning. He was just one of those, it's like, I, I thought I was good at something, and then he'd start doing it, and he'd be better already. He's just like, really? But here's the thing about him. He was the most encouraging person I've ever met. I remember he was a skater, and he, he was great at skating, and, and I decided I'd get into skateboarding. And so the first day I started, and he, he's like, oh, let me show you some things. And instead of being like, you are such a poser. You kind of like when you go surfing, you're out there surfing, and you see the person who's learning for the first time. And, and, you, and you forgot that you used to be that person. You know, like, oh, they're in the way. They don't know what they're doing, all that. You know, you, you can have that attitude. Bobby was the opposite. He'd be like, this is so cool that you're going to learn this. And he'd teach you and show you. And he would, if you pulled, like, the simplest trick, he'd be like, that is so great. He would cheer for you and just literally would, would, literally would cheer. He'd be like, that is so amazing. He was one of those people that you always wanted to be around. And in small ways, he just demonstrated that he saw life as he was just part of a bigger story. It wasn't just a story about him. It was the people around him as the full experience. When, I, when I'm around people like that, I think I describe them as not always my best friends, but I call them my favorite friends. The people that you want to be with. They're like, yo, you're my favorite people. 
He's one of them. Because the story wasn't always about him. He was in the story, but he noticed you in it as well. So humility is seeing yourself in the part of a bigger story. Let's move on with that. Let's go back to Philippians 2 and see how Jesus goes deeper, or Paul goes deeper. He actually says in verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And then now, so he says, I want you to see yourself as part of a bigger story. Have the same attitude that Christ had. And now he enters into this part of Philippians chapter 2, which most scholars would agree was a hymn or at least a version of a hymn that the first century church would sing. It was a song about the incarnation of Jesus. What that basically means is when Jesus, when God became flesh. So it's a Christmas song, singing about how, what it means, the whole Christmas season. So this is the earliest version of a Christmas song that we have. And uh, as I read through it, I thought, I don't know how we can make this into a singable song, so we'll read it. So, Paul says this, have the same attitude as in Christ Jesus. Now he busts into the song, it says this, he uh, already existed in the form of God, but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Actually continues on and says this, For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So the name of Jesus every knee will bow and those who are in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you see that the example that Jesus gives, that in the very nature God didn't even consider that something to be grasped, which meant this. It didn't mean that he didn't know he was God. It didn't mean that Jesus forgot that he was God. It didn't mean that he walked through, the li- through life, and the first time he turned water into the wine, he went, whoa, like this Harry Potter moment. Wait, I have magic? It wasn't anything like that. He knew he was God, but he didn't consider that equality to be something to be grasped, meaning that he chose to walk through life and experience it like you and I experience life. He chose to give up that part of him for a season. But he never forgot who he was. He knew the end of the hymn. He knew that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. He knew even while he was on the cross that he was going to win the victory. He knew the end of the story. He was part of the writer of the story. Could you imagine writing the story? Could you imagine being God and having people mock you and and not doing anything about it? Could you imagine when your brothers were like, yeah, you think you're God. Oh, what do you think you're God? (laughs) And choosing not to act every time have people call him a drunkard and a sinner, a glutton, have teachers of the law question his understanding of the law that he wrote. Could you imagine that? If it were me, I'd be like, okay, every once in a while, someone would just burst into flames and blow up. Be like, you questioning me anymore? But he chose to live and to exist and never to live or never enact that because he was on a greater mission. What we see here is humility flows from an assurance of your incredible worth. Jesus knew that he was the king of all. And his humility actually flowed from a confidence in his actual worth. C.S. Lewis says it this way. 
do not imagine that if you meet a really, a, a really humble man, that he will be what most people nowadays call humble. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you, of course, that he is nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He'll probably not be thinking about himself at all. I love how C.S. Lewis t- talks about that. Is it's not the person who's walking around telling you, oh, I'm nobody, I'm, so, I'm just so low, so I'll serve you. But it's actually someone who has this confidence in who they are. So much so that they're able to enjoy life and take an interest in others. I remember once I was uh, dropped off one of my boys at a sleepover. And I dropped him off on the driveway, and there was already a whole group of, of uh, boys there in the pile of sleeping bags, and he jumped out of the car. And I remember he got out of the car. He looked over at me, and I said, good night, buddy. I love you. And he said, I love you, Dad. I said, cool. That's, you know, that's all you want as a dad, right? But then it got better. I heard one of his friends while I'm still rolling down up the window, so I rolled it up slower when I heard this. And he, and, and he said, you still say I love you to your dad? And I heard my son say this. He said, well, yeah, of course I do. Don't you love your dad? And I kind of rolled up the window and I'm like, heck yeah. <laughs> he won't do it anymore, but. <laughs> no. Here's the thing that I thought. One, there was one sad thought of like, oh, it's sad because there's probably some of those kids there that don't have that relationship. But then there's also this joy but then I, I was thinking deeper about that. Of, wow, he had such confidence in who he was that even when his friends in junior high questioned him on it, and do you want to know what peer pressure is? Be with like 10 other 8th grade boys <laughs> who question you when you say something like that to your dad. Like all of a sudden, you're on, you're, some of you are like, why would that be hard? Like, trust me, if you're an 8th grade boy, you get it. <laughs> you could get beat up for things like that back in my day. But the confidence to say, oh yeah, no, that's, this is who I am. And I was thinking about that story and thinking of, oh, there's such freedom in having a confidence in who you are. That actually you don't even have to defend yourself. See, so much of our life is managing people's view of us, is it not? So much of what we do is managing, if I serve you here, what are you going to think of me? Am I, am, are you going to think that now I'm less than you? What if I'm all of a sudden going to just, ra- just radically love my family, radically love my wife? What, what if she thinks, okay, what are, what are your motivations here? What if I radically love my children and let them know that, oh, no matter what, I'm here for you? What if I serve the poor and the homeless and the, the lowly? Will people think, like, what are you out to get? When we do it out of a place of confidence that we see ourselves a part of a bigger story. We're not managing expectations and trying to get acceptance out of that. It's just flowing out of who we are. That's what Christ did. He knew he was God. He knew that the people he served were not worthy of his presence. But he also knew that that wasn't going to change anything about his story. It would change theirs. This whole section in Philippians chapter 2 actually begins and says, if there's any confidence, any encouragement from being in Christ, then he goes into this example. In other words, saying, if you really knew what it meant to be in Christ, 
then let that live, that flow out of you. And let your motivation be who you are in Christ. And if someone doesn't return your service, well, that's not what it's about in the first place. You're part of a bigger story. If someone doesn't thank you for being so humble, that's not what's building you up anyway. It's in Christ. As a band makes their way back up, I just want to land on one last example. See, sometimes life can feel like a, a, a cycle, this treadmill, this endless cycle of seeking approval and, and kind of looking to fill your own acceptance tank. Have any of you ever been there? You don't have to raise your hand, but we just kind of feel like, man, I just wish people would recognize me more. I wish they would thank me more. I wish they would know what I've done for them. And, and, and it can sometimes feel like we're on this endless cycle of just of, of trying to gain approval. And I love how when Jesus came, he just stepped off that treadmill and broke the cycle. In John chapter 13, there's a story where Jesus is with his disciples. It's the last night he was with them. And they actually had an argument ahead of time, and their argument was, who's the greatest of us? Who gets to sit with Jesus in the kingdom? Who gets to be on his right hand and his left hand? Like, which one of us are doing the best job, Jesus? And what status are we gaining in heaven? That was their debate. That was their argument. This is when the Son of God is about to give his life for humanity, his disciples, those who knew him most, were thinking like, I wonder which one of us is the best. <laughs> oh, we've all been there. We've all been there. Maybe you don't say, I wonder if I'm the best. You might look around and say, at least I'm, I know I'm not the worst. And Jesus did the most radical thing in human history. Well, one of, he did that a lot. And he gave his life was one. But right before that, he took out a towel. And while they were debating and arguing and talking about how great they were, he pulled up his robe. And he pulled out a basin of water. He took out this towel and started washing his disciples' feet. Which in their culture, not even any of the disciples would wash each other's feet. You had to have someone low, low, low. The lowest of servants were the ones to wash feet. It was a position people would have in their house if you were wealthy enough. But the, the only person, this is the lowest of low. I know I wouldn't want to wash a bunch of guys' feet who've been walking around in their rainbow sandals across Israel. <laughs> Jesus got down on his knees and he washed each one of his feet and he looked them in the eyes and I imagine in that moment you'd be more embarrassed to have Jesus serving you than he felt to serve them because in that moment every one of them knew that I'm not, I don't deserve this what are you doing? But in that moment, Jesus used that, and I, without saying any words, I bet you every single one of them understood. This God is telling me I'm of great worth and great value. Each one of them knew at this moment that everything they've seen over the last few years was so significant, was 
so much greater. Everything they had, I, I can imagine the stories going through their mind of the outcasts and the drunkards and the prostitutes and everyone who didn't deserve to be in their presence. All of a sudden, they saw themselves in those people. So, oh, I'm like them. And he washed their feet, scraped the mud out from between the toes. And then he said, the way I loved you, I want you to love others the same way. And I can't imagine a greater moment of, of a tangible reminder of the power of that love and that service, of the power of that humility, saying, if my service, if my seeing others as part of a bigger story could make them feel like I feel in this moment, then I'm in. I'm in. Friends, we have a world who's living on a treadmill, treadmill that's about stepping on people, not serving them. The last thing they expect from Christians is for someone to kneel down and say, I'm, I want you to know there's a God who loves you and I love you. And it actually doesn't make us weak. And even if they don't respond the way we want them to, we can live out of a place of confidence to know that if our Jesus, if our God could do that for me, man, the sky's the limit of how I live for others. So this Christmas season, it's easy to love the lovable. But maybe for all of us, we're being called to not forget about the Grinch. I want to invite you to stand as we pray and end our time. God, we ask that you take this message of, of your example of humility, Lord, and would you help us to just embody that? Lord, and help us not embody it to somehow gain anything, gain approval. But Lord, let's just embody it because you embodied it and you've given it to us. It's now what's true of us. It's our new reality. And Lord, would you give us a heart for others that we may love and serve out of a place of confidence that we are yours and we're part of a bigger story. So Lord, receive our hearts as we turn them back to you now and continue to move and shape us in this place. In your name, amen.